0: All right. Would you please take your copy of the Word of God? I hope you have it with you. Uh, This morning we want to turn to the book of Matthew and we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 10. And we're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 through 4. Matthew 10, 1 through 4. I spent a little time wondering about what it would be like uh, for a young fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, and I don't know if he uh, worked with others, and I think they did, and they owned boats together, at least a boat together, and they're out there on the Sea of Galilee fishing every day in that first century, and I wondered what it would be like for a young man by the name of Simon uh, to be out there on that water and every day fishing And I wondered what his aspirations were. I mean, we all get into certain uh, careers and stuff like that, and we have certain aspirations for that career. What we want to do and what we want to become. Well, what was it like for a young fisherman on the Sea of Galilee? Was it uh, to one day be the greatest fisherman that ever uh, lived on the lake of Galilee, where he fished every day? I wonder if it was to try to make himself rich so he could gain as much uh, wealth as he could to take care of his family and maybe open up a a big uh, venue where they sell the fish and where he had other boats and other fishermen working for him. I don't know. I just know that he loved doing it. Was it simply to raise a good family? Was it simply to just have a family that paid attention to Torah, a family that were steeped in the words of God in the Old Testament and wanted to live for God uh, and also was faithful at the synagogue every week and then three times a year faithful at going to Jerusalem up to the up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord with the rest of the of Israel i don't know what it was do you suppose that even ever one time that this young man dreamed that someday he would be a leader of other leaders and he would be one of the greatest leaders of something he didn't even know about which is called the church uh, the assembly in terms of the the Greek text and he was going to be one of the greatest leaders in the Messianic movement in that century uh, for a guy named Jesus Christ and it would absolutely change his life forever. I just want you to think about the fact that because we're mostly ordinary people, right? God takes ordinary people and he does extraordinary things with those people. I doubt Peter even thought about these things before he met Jesus, didn't even know about these things before he met Jesus. I don't know what he aspired to do, but once he came to Jesus, Jesus said, hey, we're done fishing for fish, okay? That's pretty much over. I'm going to teach you how to fish for men, and that's a much more uh, worthwhile thing for you to be doing. And by the way, uh, Jesus was going to pay the bills for him along the way, as he would with the other disciples, because they chose to follow God. And so uh, they are going to do more than just keep fish on the table uh, for their family to eat and provide a good living. They're going to give their life for Jesus Christ. And I want us to be challenged with that today. I want us to be challenged with, are are we giving our life as much as we can to the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you think that on his his scale that you're worth very much? Do you think he can't use you? Do you think, well, I'm never going to amount to anything. I'm just going through life. That's wrong. God can use you. And could you believe it if he called you to give you a life for his cause? Now, technically, everybody should be living a life for his cause, doing whatever you're doing right now, wherever you're working, uh, whatever your occupation is, whether you're a farmer or you work in town at something, doesn't matter, we're there to minister for Jesus Christ. But what if he called you to do even a little bit more than that? Would you go? Would you do it? Would you uh, do what he asked you to do? Uh, One of my professors in seminary taught me this. And, of course, I'm quoting him. He said, your career is what you were paid to do. Your calling is what you're made to do. We don't always get those straight. Sometimes we think the career is more important than the calling, and it never is. Our career is what we're paid to do. Our calling is what Jesus Christ made you to do, and that's the issue. I want to read the text now in Matthew 10, 1 to 4, and it won't take us long, obviously, but here's what it says. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits, so that's all the demons and, and those uh, enemies that fell when Satan fell from heaven, and cast them out. So these guys, these 12, have the authority to go out on their mission, and Jesus just gave them authority to cast out any demon that they run into, And he goes on to tell them more, cast them out, and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. In other words, there'd be nothing in terms of demonic powers, sickness, or disease that they couldn't deal with on their mission trip. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. Matthew tells us the first, or the leader, is Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And we have another set of brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. Isn't that interesting? He wrote the book, and he decides to remind you who he is, where he came from, and he decides to remind you that uh, he was the low life in Israel, but Jesus Christ chose him for, th- for great things. And then James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, um, Simon the zealot, That's a group of people he belonged to to overthrow the uh, Roman government. And Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. So he basically just says three things uh, about three of them. The rest of them we don't hear much about. And by the way, other than a few lists of disciples, of the apostles, uh, some of these guys, we never see their name again. And so we rely on church history and church tradition to tell us what they did for Jesus Christ. And I'm going to share some of those things with you this morning. In verse 1, what I want us to learn is that authority from and faith in Jesus, so authority from and faith in Jesus are the keys to ministry in his name. So obviously I'm talking about uh, we need to be ministers for Jesus Christ. We need to minister in his name. And if we're going to do that, then we need to have authority from Jesus Christ, and we also need to have faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing in the Christian life works without faith. Nothing. And so we're people of faith. Now, I am known, uh, or am known in theological circles, uh, just talking about people that know theology, I'm not talking about people talk about me all over the place about this, they don't, but I am known as a cessationist. And as a cessationist, I believe that the miraculous sign gifts have ceased, that God is not giving them out as a matter of course every day to people. I'm talking about the gift of those things. But I need to add a caveat to that statement, and it is this. I believe that the sign gifts have ceased. Let me get that out first. Uh, Let's look at 1 Corinthians 13.8, and I'll tell you why uh, I believe that, because of what the scripture says, 1 Corinthians 13.8. Some of you use this uh, passage in here, uh, the love chapter, for your weddings. Uh, I probably didn't get into some of this other stuff, but it says this. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. It means words of knowledge, the charismatic gift. He says, for now we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. I don't think he's talking about Jesus there being the perfect, although Jesus is perfect, right? He's talking about when we have the perfect completed canon of Scripture, which we have now, we don't need those miraculous sign gifts that are pointing the way. Uh, to Christianity as God's way. Now, one other verse I want to add to that uh, is from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, obviously, uh, again, written here by, by the Apostle Paul. And Paul says this about apostles, all right? And Paul was an apostle. The signs of a true apostle. So what we understand is that there were certain signs assigned to the apostles to prove that they were of God. And remember what God is doing here is that God is saying, look, I used to relate to you under the old covenant, the new, the new covenant has now come, and that's how I'm going to relate to you. So in this process of moving, which is Jesus right in the middle, the process of moving from the Old Testament, and uh, you know, Peter wanting his kids to be really steeped in the Torah, and, and now to the New Testament, now he wants them to be steeped in Jesus Christ and the New Testament books that will come in their lifetime, Something has to change in this interim, and we're in that change that Jesus is making, and he gave his apostles these gifts, these miraculous gifts to prove to people God is in the church. God is in this assembly of believers. The new covenant is here. It's no longer the old covenant, and God says, I gave them miraculous signs and wonders to do to prove to people. Uh, that I am in this movement. But there comes a time, uh, like uh, 1 Corinthians 13 said, that we're not going to need those anymore. So the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Paul said God has authenticated the church. Now, I have other places that I back that up, like Hebrews 2, 1-4, Acts 2, 43, Mark 16:20, and Acts 4:31. Uh, I guess if you want those, you can ask me sometime, and I'll give them to you in a way you can actually uh, copy them down. But that's not the only place that we can go to for this. So now I'm going to go back to uh, Matthew 10. However, uh, as a cessationist, you need to understand that I believe that God can do any miracle that he wants to do today that is appropriate for his will to be done any time that he wants to do it. So that means that I don't hesitate at the hospital or with you sometime if you're sick or anything like that. I don't hesitate to pray that God would heal you because I know he can do it. The issue is, is it his will to do it? And how is he going to do it? Could he do it miraculously? I believe he could, but I would never say that and then say, well, I have the gift of healing. I don't. Uh, The New Testament gift of healing doesn't look like any healing in any ministry that I have seen today. And so I think there's a problem there but God can do anything he wants to do anytime he wants to do it. So I'm a cessationist with a caveat and that is uh, it does not mean that God is done doing miracles. He's done handing them out as charismatic gifts to individual people. All right, that's my view on it anyway. One point I wanna make then is this because we're talking about a place where the disciples are given great miracles to do on a mission. The point I wanna make is this, just because the Lord gave his disciples authority does not mean that it's going to work for us the same way today. These are the apostles. These are the the, uh, disciples of Jesus Christ, and they're given special authority over things like sickness and demons and stuff like that. Now, uh, we must be concerned with our authority when we're doing ministry in every case uh, with faith and the will of God. That's how we move forward today. For instance, Uh, Today, I can't just walk up to somebody who's demonized and command the Spirit, leave them. I don't have that right, not even as a Christian. Because that demon is there in that person, because that person through sin gave that demon a right to be there. And until that person takes away that right themselves with working with God and Jesus, asking forgiveness, getting things right with him, until that happens, that demon does not have to leave and so I've had I learned that the hard way early on trying to do uh, interventions with people and demons play games with you until they're tired with you then they pretend like they're gone and they're not because they knew I didn't have any authority once they take care of their sin once they take care of the reason that the enemy was there in the first place then I do have some authority to send it away. Because if that person's locked up by that enemy and they can't talk and they can't do anything else uh, by themselves, then then if they've taken away the ground, I can then command that enemy to leave. Then I have the authority. So uh, I have a difference of opinion with some people who say that authority is the same for us today. It's not. Anyway, so uh, please note, there was no exception to what the apostles could heal. Jesus gave them authority over everything. And that means uh, they could heal any sickness, any disease, any mental issue, or some other rare malady uh, in a person that they need taken care of, it didn't matter. They could take it head on on this ministry and do it. How would you like to know that? God sends you out on a ministry and he says, by the way, I'm giving you authority over all these things. You're gonna have quite a ministry, right? Because you're doing things that other people aren't doing. Uh, people that have supposed faith healing gifts today, they can't heal like they did in the New Testament. They can't do things like take the handkerchief that they were wearing that day, lay it on a, on a dead person's body or a sick person's body and have them healed. Uh, can't walk down a road, have their shadow fall on them, and they're instantly healed. Uh, people today say, well, they must have faith on their own. Tell me how many dead people had faith to be resurrected from the dead before they were resurrected from the dead. Zero, right? Uh, It's not a matter of that. It's it's a matter of the power of God. But these guys had this power. They would not be running into any demon along the road, any any evil spirit that they did not have authority to heal and remove from people. What what a fantastic thing that would be. That would really help in some of the things uh, that I get involved in. But they still had to have faith. You hear that? They still had to have faith. Jesus said, I'm giving you this power. Okay, now you've got to go out there and believe it. Well, that became a problem uh, at times. They had to have faith in the truth and the efficacy of what the Lord had given them. And here's just an illustration of that. If you want to turn over to Matthew uh, chapter 17, verse 14, a very embarrassing day for the apostles, <laughs> would be for us. And it says uh, in, in this uh, chapter of 17, 14, when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. Uh, That Greek word in the Greek means moonstruck. We often think that people have emotional problems more when the moon is full. Uh, Here it's called uh, lunacy. And is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So now we know what uh, part of the problem with lunacy is. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. What do you mean they could not cure him? He gave them the authority. The only thing that could have been lacking was their faith. They could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, notice he's not talking to the guy who's on his knees who's asking for his son. He's talking to his disciples. You can almost see him turn a little bit because I'm sure they're cowering and, and being ashamed behind him and say, oh, okay, so that's the problem. This guy came and you couldn't cast this demon out. And Jesus answered and said here to his disciples, You unbelieving and perverted generation. Ouch, that hurts. You know, out there trying to do mission for Jesus. You unbelieving and perverted generation. How long shall I be with you? I'm sure somebody in the crowd said, well, Lord, I hope a little longer because we apparently are not in good shape. How long will I be with you? How long will I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Ouch, wow. And Jesus rebuked him. The evil spirit inside this boy. And the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, uh, they they asked him, why couldn't we drive it out? Verse 20, because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have the faith of the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here and there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. And let me just add this, because you need to know it, because it's it's being used in places to damage people. Verse 21 was not in in the original text of Matthew. Your study Bible tells you that. It's got brackets around it. This appears later in the text. Somebody wrote it in. It says, but this kind of demon does not come out except by prayer and fasting. That isn't true. That isn't true. And so that verse, whoever added it, should not have added it. It's not in the Bible, so uh, I have mine marked through in my Bible because it wasn't a part of Matthew's text. Now we're into text criticism. That's a whole other issue. You can talk to me all you want. Take me out to eat, and I'll talk to you about text criticism. It's fascinating, okay? So what a great gift that it would be to have at your disposal, to know before you went out on your mission. You know, I always wondered, who is the poor disciple that got stuck with Judas? How would just like to be paired up with Judas? Okay, here's your partner. Oh, boy. Lord, I'm not even sure he's a believer. Is Judas going to be able to heal the sick? Is Judas going to be able to cast out demons? Um, that's a good question. It may be, and it doesn't say this, I'm making this up, but it may be the failure for this young man to get healed from this enemy may have been at the hands of Judas, I don't know, but it sure would make sense to me. Either way, it was a lack of faith. And the Lord is going to tell them, despite his great authority from God, that they would uh, suffer opposition to their ministry. They would suffer some opposition while they're out there. And that's always the case with ministry. Uh, I know people that have signed up to be pastors because they like the schedule. You know what the schedule is for most pastors? <laughs> Sunday morning, all right? And then just because they panic on Saturday afternoon, they run in and write a sermon because they know they're on the next morning, and so they're, you know, they're, they're ready to go. I actually had a guy in my office a, two weeks ago, and he said, I've been all over this town looking for a pastor. He said, you're the only guy on duty. And it was Friday afternoon. So he had somebody to talk to. I don't know where we are, but some people think that's the ministry. I knew a guy in our town that got into ministry because of social work. He thought it was good social work. He didn't take anything in the Bible seriously. He didn't do anything seriously with the Bible. Uh, he was always had shorts on and running around, playing golf and doing all kinds of things and not really doing the ministry. And uh, he had somebody tell him in the ministry, he said, get a job like this. He had his feet up on the desk. He said, you really don't have to do anything except Sunday. And that's why we're in such trouble in America today. There's there's a price to pay in ministry. In verses two to four, God, through Jesus Christ, chose and called these specific men to carry out the task of mission. God does the same thing for us today. He calls us to specific ministries. His first choice did not include any Harvard or Yale graduates. It was about some pretty run-of-the-mill everyday guys. That's who he chose. Thank goodness, because most of us here are pretty run-of-the-mill, right? I'm going to tell you about these guys uh, individually. I thought it would be fun to know, and it also would encourage us. Peter, first leader. He was a fisherman. Jesus changed his name from Simon, and his new name means rock or stone, Petra in the Greek. And he also gave him, and we'll see it in chapter 16, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And he's the one who tried to use a sword to stop Jesus' arrest, and he he took out his sword and he cut off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. Jesus put it back on the ear and told him to put his, his sword away. Those who live by the sword, he said, will die by the sword. And he's the one who vowed to be faithful to Jesus no matter what happened, And uh, that was right before he uh, basically denied that he knew Jesus three times. He became the leader of the apostles. He opens the door of salvation because he's been given the keys to the Jews, the Gentiles, and those of mixed Jewish and Gentile race. All right, and that's all outlined in the book of Acts. Jesus promised him he would die by being crucified, which which Peter when it came to the time to be crucified said you know what I'm not worthy to be crucified right side up like Jesus so he had them crucify him upside down he wrote the books of first and second Peter and his name appears in the New Testament 159 times Andrew is brother was first introducing the first one to introduce Peter to Jesus. And when Jesus told the disciples they would feed the 5,000, it was Andrew that told him that they had come up with a lad who had five barley loaves and two fish. He later preached in Asia. Now some of this stuff is from Christian tradition. It doesn't say in the Bible. And he also was crucified on an X-shaped cross. And he is mentioned 13 times in the New Testament. Then James, his, uh, the brother of John, son of Zebedee, Fished with his father in Galilee, Jesus named him and his brother Bonerges, Bonerges, and it means sons of thunder, we'll talk about that in a minute, Uh, was a member of the Mount of Transfiguration audience. He, with his brother John, asked to be able to sit at the right and left of Jesus in his kingdom. It was actually his, uh, his mother, their mother, that came and asked for that position. And I'd like to read that to you, Matthew chapter 20. Uh, because there is no room for pride or arrogance in the ministry. And it says here in Matthew 20, starting in verse 20, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. So here's mom, she's got the boys in tow. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine will sit on the right and on your left of his throne. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, We are able. These guys are always enthusiastic, aren't they? He said to them, My cup you shall drink. In other words, you will die for the faith. But to sit on my right or my left is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the other ten disciples became indignant because these two brothers were trying to gain a leg up and sit next to Jesus. So Jesus thought it's time to talk about leadership and pride. So he says, but Jesus called them to himself and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and there are great men who exercise authority over them. It is not this way with you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be the servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. It shall be the slave just as the son of man did not come to, to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. It was a tough pill to swallow that day. I'm sure. Herod had James's head removed. It made the Jews very happy, so he also arrested Peter to do the same thing. Herod saw that it what pleased the Jews, and he was a politician. And if it ha- if the uh, Jews are happy, I'm going to be happy. So we can kill them off. As you know, Peter escaped. John, his brother. The other half of the sons of thunder, according to Luke 9, 54, because Jesus and his men were out, and all of a sudden they saw some people doing things they shouldn't do, and the sons of thunder stepped up and said, Lord, shall we call down lightning from heaven to burn them where they stand? And Jesus said, whoa, I came to seek the lost. I came to heal people. I'm not here to burn them with lightning, all right? So Jesus called them boner (laughs) guests. I've had uh, friends in seminary that were much like that. Uh, He was a fishing partner with James, and at the tribulation, I'm sorry, at the transfiguration, uh, he was there. He helped prepare Passover for Jesus. He was a competent theologian. He wrote the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the epistles, and he wrote Revelation. He called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He uh, He was the only apostle to escape a violent death. However, tradition says they tried to kill him by boiling him in a cauldron of oil, but he lived, and so they banished him to the island of Patmos. Philip of Bethsaida was the one who brought Nathanael to Jesus. At the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus asked him how they were going to feed so many people, and he told Jesus 200 denarii was insufficient. He asked Jesus to show them the father, and it would be enough for them. And he later uh, preached in Upper Asia. He was martyred in the city of the sun, Heliopolis in Phrygia and he was scourged, imprisoned, and then crucified. Bartholomew, who is probably by his other name, Nathaniel. This name occurs only in the list of the apostles. Tradition says that he preached in several countries, and he was beaten and crucified. Thomas, the one they call the twin, Thomas Didymus, twin. He was the one who did not know the way that Jesus was talking about in John 14. And he questioned uh, the resurrection, had it really taken place. And he said, I'm not going to believe unless I see Jesus and stick my finger on the scars of his hand and his side. And then we call him the Doubting Thomas. Uh, It is said that he ministered in Parthia and India, and he died when he was thrust through with a spear. Matthew, his Hebrew name was Levi, a tax collector. When he chose to follow Jesus, he held a large banquet for him. He invited all the other tax collectors and other irreligious people in Israel, and he wrote the Gospel of Matthew. He preached in Parthia and Ethiopia, and he was killed with a halberd in uh, Nadaba, and that's a long spear, but down from the tip is also an ax head, and that's what they used uh, to kill uh, our buddy Matthew. James, the son of Alphaeus, only listed in the list of apostles, and nothing more. Possibly, they say, he ministered in Egypt. It is, though, uh, it, is it is thought that he was crucified either in Astrakhan or stoned to death in Jerusalem. Thaddeus, who is possibly by the other name Judas, the son of James, was only mentioned in the list of the apostles. Tradition says that he and Simon did an exorcism uh, and the religious uh, leaders in Samaria crucified him. Simon the Zealot, Simon the Zealot was a member of the Jewish group dedicated to overthrowing Roman rule. Uh, There were five different groups of Zealots. One was known as the Assassins, and they carried daggers around so they could avail themselves of killing certain people when the time came. He ministered in Mauritania, Africa, and Britain, and he was crucified in Samaria. Judas Iscariot, the group treasurer, and a wolf in sheep's clothing, a non-believer was the one who betrayed Jesus, selling him over to the Jews for 30 pieces of silver. He hung himself in a tree, and he stayed there long enough that he rotted, and his body then, the neck broke, he fell on the ground, and his bowels gushed out. And that's how you rec- reconcile those two passages. Um, he uh, was uh, buried in Akhaldama, the field of blood, the potter's field. Uh, and then we have Matthias, who took over after Judas was gone. Tradition says he was stoned to death in Jerusalem, and then they decided to cut his head off because apparently stoning wasn't good enough. My point is this. Each servant of Christ is called to a specific ministry that Jesus designed for them, and he designed them for that ministry. Including the method of your death, it's already planned. Jesus knows what it's going to be. He told uh, Peter in John 21, 18, how he was going to die. He said, you're going to be crucified. And Peter turned around and said, well, what about John? (laughs) No, leave John alone. I'll do with him what I want. Peter was the lead preacher at Pentecost when 3,000 people came to Christ. He taught us to obey God rather than men. People would be healed if his shadow fell on them. He raised young Tabitha uh, from the dead. He was the apostle of the Jews, the leader of the apostles. He refused crucifixion right side up, considering himself not worthy of dying the same way his master Jesus had died, and God used him to write scripture. Others of them, well, we're just not sure what they actually did. We go by tradition. We know they did something for Jesus. Nobody may ever write a book about you. Don't worry about it. God has a book on you, and that's the only one that counts. We need to do something for Jesus. Now, not everyone is out front in the limelight, like Peter. Most are unsung heroes of the faith, quietly keeping the work before them. That's you and me. Being faithful to the Master in their part uh, is their part of the mission on the mission field. There are people just like you and me. These missionaries we pray for, they're just like you and me. They're just people that made a, a, maybe a little different decision. And what we have made so far. God will judge my story. God will judge your story. What will Jesus remember us for before that throne on that day? What will he say of you? What will he say of me? What is written in the books in heaven about you? Do you care what's written about you? No one said it was going to be easy to follow Jesus. And so we need to be reminded of that before we take up the yoke and follow him. Now, by way of application, I just want to say none of us are Peter. We are, however, people who strive to serve Jesus the best that we can. I'm not saying God couldn't raise up somebody that is like Peter and do great things. He sure can. Um, I just want you to know that I often hear good things about you. Talking about you and that does my heart good. Uh, you are about acts of ministry for others and I, I know it and I watch it. Things like acts of caring. I know the women get tired of putting on uh, you know potlucks and taking food to people that are in need and sick and all that stuff. It, it's tiring, it's hard work, but you do it and that's the art of caring. You also help people. You encourage people You're witnessing your faith, and that's what we're supposed to do. I know you are loving. I know that you are giving. I believe, for the most part, you are living authentically. That's a big deal. You are living biblically. You're living purposely. You're teaching. You're counseling. You're praying and many other things for Jesus, and for his reputation among us. So church, I want you to keep it up. If he calls you to more, how are you gonna handle that? Will you you believe, will you go forward? Number three, we should still believe that God can and does do miracles. And he can do a miracle in your life of making you very significant and valuable for the kingdom. And then my young people, I'd like you to consider serving him full time. Like I said last week, we're, we're getting short on pastors. Now we don't believe that women take on the pastorate and teach uh, men in the church, but there's all kinds of other ministries for them that they can do. But we need young men who are willing to say I'll, I'll, I'll do it for Jesus. It's not going to be easy. I'm reading from Matthew twenty four twelve, And it says, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Man, I'm just really sure. That's where we're at today. That's where the ministry is at today. We're being attacked for our patriarchal views. We're being attacked for the things that we stand for, that we think are right morally. But I just want to remind you of this. If you're thinking on taking on ministry, this is about a church father by the name of Ignatius of Antioch, so an ancient church father. And he was martyred in 108 A.D. AD 108. And in his fervent longing for Christ, he had a fervent desire to be martyred for Jesus. (laughs) That was his goal. He said, I want to be martyred for Jesus. And I want to close with this quote. Ignatius said, and I quote, I didn't know if the kids would be here or not, so it's kind of an adult uh, quote here. I am God's wheat, and I will be ground by the teeth of the wild beasts for God. Is that you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we live in a country where right now things are still pretty easy. They're going to get rough really quick here, but they're pretty easy, and we kind of take advantage of the ease that we have in life and have not been uh, maybe as intentional about ministry as we should be. I do thank you for the job that we're doing. I thank you for people that are willing to take time out and deliver meals on wheels and do things like that that are unsung heroes of the faith. But but you watched, you know, and you'll reward each, each man according to what he has done for you. But I pray that you would also call us to significant ministry even beyond where we're comfortable and that we would be willing to be in uncomfortable positions for you. And I ask this for us in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. If you would stand, we're going to close our service today by singing hymn number 335, 335. bow with me as we close our service today. Almighty God, I do praise you and thank you that we do have the freedom to come to your house each and every Sunday. Uh, We just pray, Father, that you would continue to allow that uh, privilege to us. We thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us. And we just pray, Father, that uh, our eyes would be turned to you each and every day anyone that doesn't know you, that their eyes will be turned to you and that you would ask for the free grace that he gives us. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.